All right, we are in 2 Kings chapter 17. So go ahead and find that place. And then I have one more for you to turn to in Mark. Once you found 2 Kings 17, that's our text. And we left off in verse 37. And then find Galatians chapter 3. And just put a marker there because we'll come to that fairly soon in our lesson this morning. Anne reminded me that when the televisions were as thick as they were wide, before the plasma screen, when you had to be a man to pick a television up, that uh, at 10 o'clock at night, an announcement would come on and say, Do you, yeah, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? Yeah. All right, has everybody found both places? You need more time? Now we're in 2 Kings 17, and we are left off in verse 37, where we are reminded about what God told the children of Israel whom he delivered from Egyptian bondage. The commandments, laws, ordinances, and statutes he gave them were to be followed by every generation without fail. In fact, our text says, ye shall observe to do them evermore. And at the end of our lesson, we considered that in our own flesh, we can't do that. We can't keep God's commandments forevermore. And there are two parts to that, keeping his commandments and doing it forevermore, and we can't do either one. And even if we could keep God's commandments in the flesh, Brother James, I love that suit. Man, that looks good on you. I hope we get to pan over to him at some point during, during the Sunday school lesson. And even if we could keep God's commandments in our flesh, our flesh cannot live forevermore. So we left off in a quandary, but really it's only a quandary if you see this commandment in terms of what man's flesh can do. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of religious people are bogged down right now is trying to figure out what is it that I need to do to make myself more holy? What is it that I need to do to make myself more presentable to God? And that's the devil's treadmill, isn't it? You just never do get off of it. And the devil will tell you, if you look at this command, and I'm sure he told Israel this, that God has given you an unreasonable command. You can just hear the devil suggesting that like he did to Eve when he said, Ye shall not surely die, disagreeing with God. And the devil has convinced you that God has given you an unreasonable command because you can't possibly keep it, and how could God do such a cruel thing, requiring holiness, perfection, and yet knowing by his perfect foreknowledge you would not be able to accomplish that. So let's see what else we can learn about this command in order to keep from being troubled about it, if you're troubled. And knowing what we know so far, we might ask, 
How then could God tell Israel to keep his commandments forevermore? And let's remember something we learn about the law given in the Old Testament. And this is where I've asked you to turn to Galatians 3. So go ahead and flip over there now. Should have it marked. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 26 and make some notes there. Galatians 3, 21 through 26. Is the law then against the promises of God? Now let's stop right there. Because this would be the kind of question the children of Israel might ask when God says, you shall keep you shall observe to keep these commandments, laws, statutes, and ordinances for, forevermore. He might say, wait a minute. We can't do that. And God has yet promised us through an everlasting covenant. He made that covenant with, with Adam. And then, of course, he had one with Noah. And they're all the same covenant, by the way. They're all the gospel covenant. And with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And how then are we going to benefit, be the beneficiaries of that if we can't keep the law? And so Paul asks this question on behalf of people who had that question. Is the law then against the promises of God? God made a promise to Abraham. I'll read you that one. It's found in Genesis seventeen seven, And it says, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee. Now we're reading about Abraham's seed at least through in the flesh when it comes to Israel. Thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. So the covenant is everlasting. It's forevermore. But the perfect keeping of the law forevermore is impossible. So how can God keep his promise if the people can't keep the law? In our, in our text in 2 Kings, God had commanded his people, "Ye shall observe to do forevermore. The statutes, laws, ordinances, commandments is what it's talking about. So listen to how Paul answers that question. Is the law then against the promises of God? As we continue reading in Galatians 3, and I'm going to reread the first sentence, and then I'll keep reading from there. <clears throat> Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, not physical, but spiritual life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. That means, has said, every one of us are under sin. Nobody has kept that law that was supposed to be kept forever. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which was afterwards be revealed. In other words, we hadn't seen it yet. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by 
Keeping the law and the commandments forevermore? No, by faith in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful image there. A schoolmaster is an instructor, a teacher. And that's what the law did. The people who thought, well, there were Pharisees who were dead in their sins. In Jesus' day, we read about them, who insisted that in order to be accepted by God, you had to keep not only the law, but all of these men's traditions that were added to it by them. And that you just had to keep on, keep on, keep on. And they were the same ones who told those Galatians that except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. They'd made a mess out of it. They did not teach the law as a schoolmaster, but as a law that could give life. And Galatians said the law can't give life. The schoolmaster, that teacher, that instructor, that's what the law was that showed us that we're all sinners. And it showed us that eternal life is not to be found in the keeping of the law. Now that ought to be a giant relief for the unbeliever who has in his own flesh tried and tried and hit the reset button over again and surrendered to God and yielded to God and rededicated himself to God and done all those things. That ought to be a relief to that person to know that eternal life is not found that way. The law actually taught us, it brought us to this truth that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The law was not cruel. Some people say, well, that, and that's what the devil will tell you. How can God tell you you've got to keep this law to have eternal life, but you can't keep it? What a cruel joke. The law is not cruel. The law is good, the Bible says. The law is the one who showed us one who would forevermore observe to do God's commandments. See, that's what Jesus did. He observed to do forevermore the commandments. That was the command God gave the children of Israel in our text and before then as well. And when we realize that we are crucified with Christ, that we are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, not through the keeping of the law, but through Jesus Christ our Lord, then we realize that Jesus has already accomplished what we failed to do and could not do and cannot do and will not do. And in their flesh, it was impossible for the children of Israel to obey God's commands forevermore. So that law was their schoolmaster. And that law would point them to the same faith that justified their father Abraham. And Noah before him. And Enoch before him all the way back to Abel. And you think about the job of a schoolmaster. Brother Doug went to some sort of training for auto body paint in his life. And there came a time when the person who taught him, I assume I'm telling this right, the person who taught him said, okay, Doug, 
I've brought you to the point with everything I know that you've got to go out from here and do this yourself. So the schoolmaster's job is over with at that point. The schoolmaster's job has accomplished what it needed to accomplish at that point. Imagine, if you will, a teacher, a schoolmaster, using that old wooden dowel rod as a pointer before we had these expandable ones. And by the way, that dowel rod served other purposes as well. But primarily it was used to instruct as long as the instruction was being received politely and readily by the students. One of the best teachers I ever had was my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Rose. And this is a long time ago, Abigail. And back then, our fourth grade teachers taught every subject, including P.E. You were with them the entire day. You didn't, at that time, you didn't go from one class to another to this specialist and that specialist. And she was a very good teacher, especially when it came to learning math. And when she taught us how to multiply two-digit and three-digit numbers, she used a chalkboard and that wooden pointer. And the truth Ms. Rose conveyed to us was on that chalkboard. She'd written it on that chalkboard. But if she hadn't have taken that pointer and being a schoolmaster herself pointed us to the truth on that chalkboard, we would have never paid attention to it. We would have thought, oh, somebody worked a problem out there and we would have looked wherever it was she was pointing. But to teach us the truth about that math, Mrs. Rose had to take that pointer and show us what we needed to learn. And by pointing us to the chalkboard, she brought us to the truth that was written on it. Mrs. Rose wouldn't be around to do my multiplication for me when I left her class. She wouldn't be around to do it for me when I tested in her class. She had to bring me to it, and at that point, her job was done. And one of my classmates challenged Mrs. Rose and me to have a contest to see who could work out a multiplication problem the fastest. I was pretty fast at math. I still am, but not as fast as I was in third and fourth grade. And so... We were on different ends of the chalkboard, and Mrs. Rose had a problem written out by somebody in the class, and they kept it covered, and then they wrote my problem out and kept it covered. And so we were there ready with our chalk, and they said, go. So after the command was given to start, I looked over, and I noticed Mrs. Rose was writing so fast that the fat and the loose skin on her arms was jiggling, and I got tickled. And she beat me. Not by much, but uh, I was second place. Now, Mrs. Rose has been dead for many years, but I will never forget how she, as my schoolmaster, brought me to the truth of three-digit multiplication. Now, I don't know if that helps you understand what a schoolmaster does, but only when the children of Israel realized that the law was their schoolmaster and it was pointing them 
to a truth. Bringing them to Christ. Only then will they understand that in him they could observe to do, to keep God's commandments, God's ordinances, his laws and statutes forevermore. That's where your hope is to keep God's law, is to be one with the one who kept God's law. Jesus said to the self-righteous Pharisees, which of you convinceth me of sin? In other words, if you held a trial right now, which of you could convict me of sin? None. They accused him of blasphemy, but their prosecution failed. Look back in your text now in verse 37. We're back in 2 Kings 17, verse 37. And we'll look at the end of the verse, and ye shall not fear other gods. Now that's been said before, and it'll be said again. And this was obviously the chief problem for the children of Israel, just like it is for people today. They did not fear the Lord And they feared other gods. Verse 38. And the covenant that I have made with you, ye shall not forget, neither shall ye fear other gods. Now let's look at the phrase, ye shall not forget. Ye shall not forget. Notice God did not say, let's not forget our covenant. He said, ye shall not forget. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9 says about God when it comes to covenants. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, as Moses spoke to the people, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant And mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So by that text and others, there is no chance that God will break his covenant. He just won't. When carnal people try to make a covenant with God, they do some pretty foolish things and say some pretty foolish things. And it's because they don't understand their role in a covenant with God, and they don't understand God's role in a covenant. And as you've heard before, and you'll hear it again, the only covenant that you are to have with God is the one He has already established. You're not going to come up with a new deal. Now, you've been to buy a car before, no insult to you if you've sold cars for a living, but you know what happens you go in there and they draw the four square and try to hook you into a, an interest rate and a monthly payment and all that. And if you really press them, they'll say, hold on, let me, let me go in here and talk to the manager. We could get rid of the manager if you'd learn to do his job. Let me go talk to the manager. And some point along the way, if you hang in there and if they really want to sail, guess what you end up coming up with? A new deal, a new covenant, a new agreement. Well, how about if we lower the interest rate and we increase the number of months it takes you to pay this deal off? Well, that's not a deal for you. That's a deal for them. 
but you have a, a new deal and you have to both agree on it and it can change and you finally sign it or you walk out and take your keys with you. Don't forget to do that. But when people say they have a covenant with God, they act like it's a negotiation. And it's not. Buying a car is a negotiated covenant. We don't negotiate covenants with God. He doesn't negotiate them with us. He says, this is my covenant. He didn't ask Abraham, Abraham, I'm trying to think of something that we can both agree to. He didn't do that. He said, this is my covenant. God always sets the terms for the covenant. Our part is to agree. What did the people at the foot of Mount Sinai say whenever God gave them the commandments? He said, all that the Lord has said, this will we do. That was them saying, amen to the covenant. Man has shown both in the Bible and in our day, in the days of our forefathers, that he's a covenant breaker. And you just think of all of the peace treaties that have been signed in the history of mankind, and every one of them are broken. You think of the agreements and treaties and the the non-proliferate the nuclear non-proliferation treaties that we have with other countries. You think. They or we are keeping those? No, not a chance. And so if mankind has broken covenants with mankind, how much more egregious is it when man breaks covenants with God? Our business is to keep the covenant God gave us through the gospel, the shedding of the blood of his son, For our sins. And just so we don't miss this, let's look at this word forget in our text. Because he said, you shall not forget. And let's see how we might learn not to forget the covenant. Or really any of God's word. The word forget doesn't have a mysterious origin here. It simply means to mislay something or to to be oblivious to it because of a lack of attention to it. That explains why you forget where you laid your keys. You took your keys, at the moment you took your keys out of your engine to go in the house, that was important to you. You didn't try to drink coffee and open the door and take your keys out. You took your keys out, so for a brief moment, a second or two, that was important. Turn the keys off, take them out. When you got in the house, you had 14 other things on your mind, and so About an hour later, when you find your keys on the top of your closet, and you said, how did I, yes, how did they get there? And it doesn't matter, you found them. But that's because you had a lack of attention to the disposition of your keys. You normally put them in a drawer, you hang them on something, or you have a catch-all they go in. There's There's a pattern you have, so you can find them next time. But you forgot it because you didn't pay attention to it at that moment. And... Your mind wasn't constantly on them. Well, forgetting God's word, when we look at this word forget here, forgetting God's word, forgetting God's covenant, doesn't mean being unable to remember every word you read 
I memorized uh, several chapters in the Bible a few years ago. It took a long time. You got to do it every day. You've got to stay on it or you'll forget them. But sometimes I would get in the middle of a chapter and I'd say, oh, it's that next word. Because if I knew the next word, that was a trigger to send me successfully down the road to memorizing the rest of the chapter. Well, when I forgot God's word at that time, that wasn't the same as forgetting when it comes to this covenant. Because I was paying attention to it. It's just that my frail brain with all of its weaknesses and distractions at that time could not recall that specific word or perhaps that specific verse to move me along in my effort. I had a I was a, I wasn't oblivious to it. I just forgot it. But the forgetting God's word here means more having paid little attention to it, so it is oblivious to you. That's what happens when you just set your Bible to the side, and it you dust it every week when you dust, but you don't open it and read it. You know, I saw uh, Alice. I saw that picture that you posted visiting Miss Hensley, and uh, it was precious. But you know, I, I zoomed in on something. Her Bible's not any bigger than mine, brand new. That Bible looked like it was this tall because the pages, every page in that Bible has been turned and handled and worn and sweated on, and maybe there are even tears on some of those pages that have dried up. And so every page was wavy, which made it look about this tall to me. I I saw that. You know why that's that way? Because Mrs. Hensley didn't just set a Bible in her room as something for people to look at and say, oh, that's so sweet. She has a Bible. Oh, that's her lifeline. Her food and her drink and her medicine and having the best of care there are important. But her lifeline is that Bible, the words in it. And so she doesn't forget God's word as the children of Israel did It's not oblivious to it. You know, I had a colleague one time who would occasionally take the Lord's name in vain. And when I'd hear it, I'd just, I'd just a shudder that goes down my back of my spine. And I hope it's, hope you feel the same way. It's such a terrible thing to hear. But I asked him, I was in the car with him one time when he did that, and I asked him, since we were in private company, I said, do you realize what you're saying? And he said, what? He didn't even know he said it. He wasn't aware that he had said it. And I said, you, I said, you took the Lord's name in vain. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, uh, well, I don't know what else I said to him. I had talked to him about salvation, so had Brother Fulton, he knows who I'm talking about. But the command not to take the Lord's name in vain was something he was oblivious to. He had forgotten it in this sense. He's heard of it before. He's heard of the Ten Commandments. So how then do we keep from being oblivious to God's Word, His covenant? How do we keep from forgetting it? Well, here's the answer. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 23. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, 
and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. He said, take heed unto yourselves. That is the positive part. That is what you do to keep from forgetting God's word, his covenant. Take heed unto yourselves. So we are to take heed unto ourselves. Well, okay, what does that mean? If you look back in verse 37 in your text in 2 Kings 17, look back and look for the word observe. The word observe in our text is from the same Hebrew word translated as take heed in the Deuteronomy text I read you. And if you remember what we learned about the word observe, it was an action verb. And we may think of observing as simply sitting around and watching something happen. We have no stake in it. We don't really have to learn anything from it if we don't want to. But not so in this verse. As we learned a week or two ago, to observe is to cultivate the doing of God's commandments. So whether you put take heed or observe, it's the same thing. The Apostle Paul explained it this way in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14. This is a good amplified commentary he gave us on what it means to take heed to yourselves. He breaks it down. I love this. Romans 13, verses 13 through 14. He said, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's not a suit for sale at Nordstrom's that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you put that on like a suit. That's not what he's talking about. That's the image of putting him on. As God clothed Adam and Eve with the coats of those animals, they put on those coats. Well, he put them on them. He clothed them, and those skins were a type of the robe of righteousness, of the righteousness of Christ. So when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are taking heed to ourselves. And he gives us a list of things not to do. But when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you make provision for the faith rather than for the flesh. Because observe or take heed, those are action verbs, and that's what you're doing. You're making provision for the faith rather than for the flesh. Many people made that sort of decision this morning. They said, well, I know what time my church begins and there's a Bible study going to be happening there. But I've got something else I want to do. So they had an opportunity to make provision for the faith where they could go be built up in the most holy faith, assuming they're going to a church that teaches God's word. If not, it's just the same as going fishing on the lake. You're getting robbed of a blessing in both places when it comes to God's word, but not here. And let me tell you, there are plenty of churches, I wish there were more, who do have pastors that teach God's word verse by verse, 
Don't leave anything out, and I'm very thankful for that. But we have that decision to make every time the flesh tells us, if you will, hey, that sure looks like a lot of fun, and the Bible says don't do that. That's sin. We either make provision for the faith or for the flesh. Paul said, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't make provision for the flesh. And that's how we keep from forgetting God's covenant, and it's how Israel was to do as well, to take heed unto themselves, to make the focus of their day being built up in the most holy faith. That's the spiritual man at work. That's the, when you are in Christ, that's your spiritual man at work. That's God working through your spiritual man. And what happens, as we talked about last week, you get up in the morning and you do your Bible study and you can't even hit breakfast without having a sinful thought or saying something to your husband or wife or one of the kids or somebody on the phone that was ugly or hateful uh, or sarcastic. And you think, oh, well, that was not your spiritual man making provision for the faith. That was your flesh making provision for the flesh. That was the old man, Adam. The one that's got to die and be buried in the ground so it can be changed into a new man, a glorified body, not of Adam, but of Christ. Wow, a lot of truth in there. Now look back in the text, verse 38, and it ends the same way as verse 37 did. And you shall not fear other gods. Now I want to go into this just a little bit. Could have done it in verse 37, but verse 38 is where it's going to happen. This is what happens when you set aside God's covenant. You fear other gods. You are going to join yourself to a covenant. That's a guarantee. It's either going to be with God or it's going to be with the devils. Anything outside of God's covenant is a covenant with the devil. So this thought of being neutral, saying, well, I really don't have a preference. I just kind of stay neutral. You can't do that. Jesus said it. You are going to serve one of two masters. You'll, either, you'll serve one, hate the other, or hate the one and cling to the other. But you're going to serve a master. You're not constructed. You're not made to just do your own thing. You're going to do somebody else's thing. That's what you're going to do. But a good example of this is found in Genesis chapter 39, verses 8 through 9, about how keeping a covenant and not leads to not fearing other gods. And it's keeping the right kind of covenant, by the way. I'll explain it more as we read, after we read. Genesis 39, verses 8 through 9. After his brothers sold him into slavery to a bunch of Ishmaelites, Joseph was then sold by those Ishmaelites to the Egyptian Potiphar. And over time, Joseph became the chief servant in that Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar had an unfaithful wife, and she tried to seduce Joseph. And you're going to see how seriously Joseph took this command to not fear other gods, but to honor covenants. First of all, and there, there are at least two covenants, maybe three if we look at it even more closely, to which Joseph appeals in his attempt to escape this seductress. 
But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not, that means knoweth, knoweth not, what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Look at how Joseph appealed to the keeping of covenants. This is why it's so important when God told the children of Israel to not forget his covenant. Covenant number one is found in that verse, He hath committed all that he hath into my hand but thee. And then he further says, Thou art his wife. Joseph said, Potiphar has trusted me. Your husband has trusted me with his entire house, which includes you in the servants. And the covenant that Potiphar established with Joseph was good enough for him to refuse this unfaithful woman's advances. When a married person has inappropriate thoughts about another married person, there are two earthly covenants that that person should consider. The first one is his own covenant with his wife or she with her husband if the person's married. That ought to be a showstopper right there. Like, nope, I got a wife. Devil, the Lord rebuke you. That should be the end of it. But if that's not good enough, if a man says, well, I can't stand my wife. I've heard people say that. It's just terrible. Or I can't stand my husband. Or we're not in love anymore. Whatever foolish statement they've made. Well, then if you're not going to honor the covenant with your own spouse, at least have a little respect for the covenant that other person has with his or her spouse. Do you hate them that bad? Because the covenant that married person has with her husband or she with, with or he with his wife is important, just like the one you have with your spouse is. I know of a man right now who has three, no, he does not go to church here, who has three small children, and at least one of those children has special needs. And the man's wife is a stay-at-home mother, and boy, she has her work cut out for her, as you know. And this man has repeatedly been unfaithful to his wife, and his current mistress is a single woman. And I happen to know one of the women, the single woman, with whom he's had an affair. And yes, he is doing wickedly. He has failed to honor the covenant between him and his wife. But this one's often overlooked. Because that single woman who's committing adultery with this married man... Although she doesn't have a covenant with a husband, she's not married. But she is forgetting a covenant. Not her own, but the one her lover has with his wife. The moment he approached her and she found out he was married, she should have said, Time out, buddy. You're married. You have a covenant with your wife. And that is enough for me to say, We are nothing but work friends. We don't have anything to do with each other past that. But she doesn't. 
That ought to be enough for a single man or a single woman to stay away from a person who's married. You find that ought to be the first thing you ask them, are you married? They say no. Say, are you a Christian? Are you divorced? I mean, ask some questions. That covenant ought to mean something to you. And understand if, if somebody is, whether they're here or listening, I never know who I'm talking to. I don't know what you do off duty from church. But if you are an accessory to breaking a marriage covenant, even though you yourself are not in the marriage covenant, then you need to consider the importance of that other person's covenant. And oh, how many pastors and Christians in general have fallen because they forgot the covenants they had with their own spouses or that other people had with their spouses. But Joseph didn't forget either one of those covenants. Now here is the big one. This is the one that makes it a lot easier to keep the other covenants. This is number two in here. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's the covenant that's most important here. Joseph showed the Potiphar's wife that avoiding adultery was not only proof of his respect to the covenant between the Potiphar and him and between the Potiphar and his wife, but it was also proof of his respect to the covenant God had established with him. Joseph said to her it would be a sin against God. So he knew better. Even though at that time the Ten Commandments had not been given on Mount Sinai, this was before that. But Joseph knew it was a sin. How many wives did God give to Adam? He made her one. One wife. Man is the one who messed that up. If you consider and respect God's covenant with you, and the price he paid to establish it, then you won't have near the problems keeping your earthly covenants. Because you'll honor your covenant with your mortgage company since you agreed with them to pay off that mortgage at a certain rate and in a certain time. You'll honor your covenant with your student loan institution and pay off your student loans because you said you would. You won't let Joe Biden tell you that it's okay to break that covenant and just not pay your student loans off. You signed your name on there when you were in need, when you didn't have the funds to go to college, and you said, I'll pay it back. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. You pay that money back, every dime of it. And you'll honor your covenant with your spouse, like you said you would do, till death do you part. And you shall not fear other gods, the ones that tell you that it's all right to do wrong. And we'll stop right there and pick up with verse 39 next week. Let's pray. Father, what a good time it's been in your word this morning. You've taught us so much and we're very thankful for it. And Lord, there's a lot to remember, but I pray that you would help us not to be oblivious to your word, not to forget it, but to pay attention to it to do as our sister does, to read and study that Bible so much that the pages 
are crooked and wavy. And Lord, just shows somebody who's been in the word over and over again. Build us up in the faith. And we pray that you glorify yourself in the next hour as we sing and encourage one another and hear our pastor teach from your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.